0: I'm glad you've joined us. It's um we've you know we've known each other for years, sort of in and out, and I'm glad you're here. Um glad you're here. It's nice to know you on another level. Thank you. Um any any prayer requests tonight? Oh well, you
1: know uh, you know the rampelinis? Mm-hmm. So I talked to the husband, and he said his wife was in rehab, so he's hoping she gets out of there quickly.
0: This is Ralph. Pat. Right. Pat, Pat. Yeah, right. Yeah, we know them well, and we've talked to them often. I mean, I've, um, I've called Ralph a couple of times oh, okay. when Pat wasn't doing well, and, and you know, I occasionally we go out together and talk. It's it's a cheerful time for both of us usually. I always give him a hard time the way I do everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I love their daughter. Christina is a dear, dear person. Um, she's, if you know her, you, she just... I don't ha-
1: think I've... S- oh. Is she, is she, is she uh, nearby? Does she go to our church?
0: Once in a while. She's she's oh. at home. She has a, some kind of a disability that makes her very, very, very shy. Mm-hmm. Um, she's working, I think, as a checker at a store right now, which I'm really glad for. Just a sweet. She took one of my classes at UD, so I know her from ages ago. Um, And Ralph sits in the same pew, so we always, you know, when he comes in and I start giving him a hard time, whatever it is, I say to him, he starts putting up his dukes, you know, like he's (laughs) like he's going to fight. He sits in the same pew, so it's. I really missed him. Um, We didn't see Mm -hmm. him for a while. You you miss you miss people, I think at church. You know, when you're, when you're, when they're not there, you, you're aware that they're not there. Exactly. Mark. Sir. How are you? <laughs> Sir, you're formal tonight. How are you? Oh, I'm tired. I just got in from work. So. Well, I, I know that it won't take 10 minutes for you to get feisty again and warmed up, so glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here. Um, Mark, we're just starting. Any any prayers from anybody? Any prayer requests to get started? The guy at work, his wife got Bell's palsy. Mm. What is that, Mark? Sorry, What, Bell's the, palsy. what is it? Bell's palsy. They lose Bell's. like nerves in their face or whatever, and so it just basically falls kind of one side, and then nobody knows. And I've had I've known other people in my life who've gotten it, and it usually goes away. After about a month or two, but nobody knows why they get it. Nobody knows where it you know. goes. Yeah, what's yeah, her name, Mark? Bell. Her, uh, actually, uh, what is this? is Denny's wife. Uh, I don't even know her name. What's the husband's name? Denny. Danny, 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 D E N N Y, Danny. Let me see. How old is she, roughly? My age, 50s, 15. Anybody else? Anybody else? Bit. I know.com. She fractured
1: sometimes.
0: Recently? Oh god on a, since
1: sometime in the,
0: in the last week or so? Oh wow. Wow.
1: Um
0: okay, let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Um Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and um, the gift of yourself to us through the day, especially for the gift of yourself at the Mass this morning. The readings the last two days are powerful readings. Um, On Mass over the weekend, we had that reading from Paul in which he talks about the importance of love and makes, (laughs) makes really clear that um, love is far more important than the other virtues, faith and hope. He says, without love, those are nothing. It, it, just, it, it just knocks me over the head every time I think about that. Anybody who wants to make faith higher than love, I don't know how they square that with that. The one thing about love, I'm trusting everybody knows this, um, when you get to heaven, faith drops away. You're already there. What you've hoped for is there. The one thing that lasts that's forever is love. We have faith now because we want, we trust that something real is there, what we hope for and hope for it. Um, um, love is our way there, but love is the one thing that is most important here and there. It, we won't be there without it. So, Paul, for the great work that you, <laughs> you've done and the way you continue to speak to us, um, I am all of us. Are deeply, deeply grateful. Um, the 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 reading this morning was of you healing the demoniac. Um, that poor man, chains couldn't hold him. The demons were so violent. We live in a world that in which people deny violent, or I mean, demons or hell. Those are foolish superstitions of Catholics, um, it puts us on an edge because our belief includes things that so much of the world doesn't believe in. I ask for a strength for all of us here for our church but those of us who are doing this work together um, to not be afraid of evil, to find a courage in you to face it wherever we are um, to put our pride away, so that when we deal with it, we're not getting, we're not letting ourselves get in the way of it, that so we can stand up, put ourselves away, um, be with you, um, bring you um, to all that we do, in the difficulties we face, the evils we face, the love that you call us to, um, strengthen us, please, in your grace, um, to make your kingdom real. So know that we are with you to bring that kingdom. Here, Um, so that anybody we encounter, particularly where there's opposition, can know that there's somebody else who stands with you and differently. Um, I ask for a special grace for this woman, the wife of Denny, um, for whatever awkwardnesses or inconvenience or suffering she's going through. Sounds like it will pass, but help her pass more importantly let this difficulty draw her closer to you. Um, I hope they know I, I can't speak to this, I don't know. I hope they know that they have somebody like Mark watching out for them. Um, sometimes people make these prayers and nobody knows about them. We do. Always grateful. So. Continue to strengthen Mark in his heart, in his mind. And draw him ever closer to you and help him to bring you to the world, particularly where he's going to meet opposition. Um, we offer the, uh, um, ask a special blessing too for this friend of ours or a friend of our daughters, an older woman named Bette. She just got through with rehab and, or was in rehab and fell again. She's a very, very old woman and Amy lives next door to her and sort of taken her under her wing and I think Bet's taken our daughter under her wing and speaking as a father I'm always grateful for that when anybody's watching out for her kids so help Bet, be with her, comfort her Um, (laughs) next time I see her I'll tell her to get some sense, stop falling Um, help her to stay strong in her heart, she's got a good heart Um, let her know your presence. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's start Dry Sauvages. Um, Remember that each one of the quartets has a specific location and it deals with a specific aspect of Christ. Um, it can be a still point it can be um, the center of a changing world it can be christ as a healer as a, um, as a um, as an image of a center around which we move there are a number of different ways Eliot's presenting christ and it i mean one of the things that's so important about this it, it's i think it's a help to us is that he's he's a great poet he's greatest poet of the 20th century Um, this is a non-Christian, anti-Christian century, age Eliot has to find a way of speaking to a Christian audience knowing that if he mentions Christ people are going to walk at the door Um, his talents are extraordinary, what he did with language and music are, and the critical works he um, he wrote, he got a um, a Nobel Prize Um, I think you all know that the work he did was extraordinary. In criticism, the poetry he wrote in four quartets. He's he's working off the analog of music. you Know that each quartet is set in a different place. North, um, Bert Norton, East Coker are both real places. Um, Bert Norton is a manor house um, that burned, if I remember correctly, burned down. But as it was a place in which people who believed in Christ used to pray, so he's. He's taking us back to a place that's burned down, gone. Mem- remember, before after. Um, for Eliot, that place is still alive. Like the Iliad. For me, I think for some of us. That we're never supposed to just drop the past. We live in a world, what do you call it, the cancel culture? <laughs> we live in a cancel culture that wants to do everything it can to remove the past because they see it as an obstacle to this new world. I, I, myself cannot think of a period in history, in which people thought that way. Every age was conscious of an age. Um, I don't think the way we are. We are an age that's a conscious product of the sciences coming out of the nineteenth century. We've gone over this often. Hemingway, you know, all the moder- all of them coming out of those had this sense that these sciences were going to create a new world or the, or give us the ground for creating a new world, Freudian, Marxist, um, feminist, utopian. We live in a world that wants to do everything it can to put the past away, to deny it. Every one of Eliot's poems is rooted in an actual place. Burton Norton is a manor, East Coker is a village in England. They all have a history. It's Eliot's way of reminding us that we live in history, time's a part of our consciousness. And in each of the two quartets that we've read so far, he, he plays a variation of this thing, this still point, this center, this Christ um, um, who redeemed us. He doesn't mention Christ once that I can remember, um, but he gives us image as so that modern intellectuals have to struggle with the beauty of that because if they deny that, I mean, in some sense, they've, they've lost their reason because they're being given a real help in what he's doing to make sense of the world around us. Edward Norton was the still point in East Coker. It was these, these coming to be, things passing away. And in both of them, remember, we con- we're continuously taken to this point before or after leaving us with the question, where are we? And I'll just recall some of the lines because um, they're stunningly beautiful. Um, In Burt Norton, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor toward, at the still point there the dance is. How many of us are in that dance? Do we work at trying to be there in that dance at that moment? But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. And there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. He's reminding us, to me, I, that, to me, there's no more, eu- it's almost hard to do better on the Eucharist, the Eucharist when we take the Eucharist. Where are we? You know I've been pushing this for so long. Where are we? We're here in time but we're also of another order. The mystics, the Christian mystics called out the apophatic. Um, In the middle of East Coker, the houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. Um, You say I'm repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. This is St. John of the Cross. By the way, this is the truth at the center of all mysticism in the Church. In the Christian Catholic Church. It's also one of those points in which we meet Eastern Buddhism, Hinduism, mystical points there, in their mystical tradition. They don't know Christ the way they do, but they have these rich mystical t- traditions that um, are expressions of an awareness that everything in the world is passing. It's only when we get to this other place. Um, that we can find a meaning for our lives. The difference is in Christianity we've got Christ who was God entering this time and leaving it. So he's he's given us that still point. No other religion has done that. Um, in order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own and where you are is where you are not." Those are just some of the lines of the two that we've read. Um, tonight let's start Dry salvages. Um The Sauvages, um refer to a, um, a group of rocks um, off the Massachusetts coastline. Um, and here the, the theme will be nature Um, um, interspersed or intertwined or penetrated by this divine order, so that it's present even if we don't see it. It, This is going to be this. This has so much to do with what John's doing in um, the Gospel of John. So once again, I'm glad we're doing it. Dry Savages, the opening part. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god sullen, untamed, and intractable, patient to some degree, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy, as a conveyor of commerce. It's the way we look at everything. After Bacon, that's where the world turns. After Bacon, science has as its end mastering nature and making it serve us. We want to bring nature under our control. You know from Homer the danger of that because God made nature. Um, Useful and trustworthy is conveyor commerce. Then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. The problem once solved, the brown god, is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities. Ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget, unhonored, unpropitiated by worshipers of the machine, but waiting, watching, and waiting. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom in the rank, Atlantis, the April dooryard, in the smell of grapes on the autumn table, and the evening circle in the winter gaslight. The river is within us, the sea is all about us, the sea is the land's edge also, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses, its hints of earlier and other creation. The starfish, the horseshoe crab, the whale's backbone, the pools where it offers to our curiosity, the more delicate algae and the sea anemone. It tosses up our losses, the torn seine, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, and the gear of foreign dead men. The sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. The salt is on the Brer rose, the fog is in the fir trees. It's a way of reminding us, um, by the way, one of the images that, that focuses the four quartets is fire, air, earth, and water. Each one has been an image, a governing image of the, here it's the ocean water. We know that nature's in us so that um, even if we see ourselves as different from a monkey, say, or an algae or a plant or whatever it is, The same elements run through all of us. We're all of nature, fire, air, earth, water. Nothing can exist here on earth without those elements. So we all share them. We're a part of one another. They're a part of us. Um, If we only could be reminded of that once in a while. The sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices often together heard. The whine and the rigging, the menace and caress of wave that breaks on water, the distant rote in the granite teeth, and the wailing warning from the approaching headland are all sea voices, and the heaving groaner rounded homewards, and the seagull. Under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometers, Older than time, counted by anxious, worried women lying awake, calculating the future, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future. Between midnight and dawn, when the past is all deception, the future, futureless, before the morning watch, when time stops and time is never-ending, and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell second part begins where's there an end of it the soundless wailing the silent withering of autumn flowers when you read the second part be be aware of the rhyme scheme because Eliot rarely slips into a you know an overly conspicuous rhyme scheme it's usually very subtle but okay, okay <laughs> Um, just as a reminder, some practical things. Um, we were we were doing roughly seven or eight chapters when we did Matthew each week. There's, I think there's 20 chapters in John. So let's plan to do seven chapters. That's not long. They're they're fairly short. And and we'll give ourselves um, um, probably four weeks. I think we can do Matthew in four weeks. That'll that should loosen our time and not press. So we'll do seven chapters. The, the biggest one you know is always the first one because I'm always trying to set out principles. Bless you, bless you. Um, I want to start again with a couple of questions. They're, they're the same ones that I asked last week but I've got one additional one that I hope will blow you all away. I hope you will. We're still you, um, I, I made this point before, um, I I think some of you felt the same thing. I've never done a gospel you know that i I mean literature is my, I, no I've read them often, I mean well I've read them a number of times in my life, I've gone through the Bible but I've never read them to teach them I've read them to understand them, to get closer to Christ but I've never taught them so reading Matthew with a mind that trying to organize it so that I could teach it was a real learning experience for me. And one of the things I came out of that work with is my awareness that how much we miss. I'm saying this because you know from the very beginning one of the hammers that I've been hitting you guys over the head with from the beginning is we don't read well. You know I believe that. Most of us think we're educated, most of us think we see well, most of us think we read well and my contention from the beginning is um, we don't see nearly as well as we think we do. We don't read well. Um, we need help. And it's just you know it's been a big. I mean, it's been one of the themes running. How well do the characters, the Iliad, take shape to go anywhere? Dostoevsky, Faulkner. How well do any of the characters in a in a work see each other or see what's going on? The one that sees what's going on is the poet. He's seen a whole action in a way the characters don't. So one of the things you learn to see in literature is is there's an irony to the world. that people live thinking they see a lot but if you're reading literature you become aware people don't see nearly as much as they think they do. Um, I'm going to say here, I'm going to extend that, that's especially true of scripture and I'm going to say it's especially true of us as Catholics. Um, we've grown up, I mean the Bible's been a part of our life forever, Um, we've grown up hearing parts of Scripture forever. But reading Matthew made me realize um, that seeing the whole of Matthew um, made me realize um, that very often because we only see parts of things, they're given to us, they're not put together, we're giving this holistic view of the Bible and Christ but without reading each of the Gospels separately, there's things we miss. I mean, some things jumped out at us, I think. The way Christ's missing changes, we saw a number of things that were, you know, could have thrown us off. Um, we've seen that each of the Bible or each of the scriptures, the Gospel, starts with a different beginning and gives, the, gives each Gospel a different authority, a different way of looking at the world, for very different ways. And I think what we're going to see today is that John does something that is absolutely astonishing um, and radically different from anything going on in the Synoptic Gospels. We can hear that forever in church and not get it. Now I hope we get it. We're going to focus our attention on John to see what it is exactly he's doing. Because it's, it's stunningly, stunningly different. Stunningly different. So we'll do seven chapters each week. Um, here are my questions. These are Some of these are a carryover um, from last week, but I'd like everybody to hold on to have these questions in mind as we're going through John tonight. First question. Um, how well do we read Scripture? How well do we read? Again, there it is. Um, our understanding is that Scripture is a miracle. It's the living word of God. John John's going to make that clear in a way nobody else does. He opens his gospel saying, In the beginning was the word, the unspoken word. We had not he, he was there in the beginning, before we heard him, before the prophets spoke, before Christ enters time. Um, so we're experiencing a miracle. God is speaking to us directly, and I I really pushed this last week. Do we hear him that way? Do we actually feel that we're in the presence of him the way we would be if we were praying to Mary? Do we imagine Mary to be right in front of us so we're speaking to her? If we keep her at a distance, if we keep him at a distance, I think some of that distance comes into our way of relating to Christ. So how well do we read Scripture? How well do we hear it? Second question, has the veil fallen over our faith? Paul says the veil fell over the Jews, that they went through the motions of their faith, they weren't living it. We know that from the Gospels because over and over and over again Christ is condemning the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all of them, because they're living in their heads. They're demanding a lot of people, expecting a lot of people, but they're not living what Christ asked of them. So has the veil fallen over us? How strong is our faith? Over and over and over again we see people approaching Christ in faith and Christ healing them because of their faith. He makes it clear that without faith he can't do anything. He goes into his own town and the miracle's cut down because there <laughs> God just there what they see is this young kid growing into a man. You know, he's this he's Joseph's son and Mary's son. Can't be God. It's almost as if they've been expecting a Messiah, and it's like they expect this great thing or this huge thing or a deus ex machina or some great appearance to take place. Somebody, somebody who's going to do away with the, you know, the um, Romans um, and free them. Do we take the kingdom as seriously as we should, the way Christ? One of the things we saw in Matthew that we are not going to see anywhere in John—stunning difference. You can't go through Matthew without, I mean, in a page and not run into a parable. Almost the whole of Matthew is Christ teaching through parables. He's teaching through stories. He obviously sees the importance of literature. Again and again and again, he tells a story, and it's so clear that his his. Disciples rarely get them, Um, but he's trying to give a picture of the kingdom. He knows it because he came from there. He's going to say over and over again in John and the other Gospels, um, through him we know the Father. Even if the Father seems distant or remote, that distance closes with Christ we see the father in him if we ever had any questions about who that father was some of them have got to be to rest Um, do we do we see the kingdom do we really see the father in Christ in John he makes it absolutely clear he's only there because the father sent him back to, to me it's going to be one of the framing motifs one of the one of the ideas that structures the whole gospel over and over and over again, over and over and over again. He keeps talking about himself in terms of the Father. Um, Do we take the kingdom as seriously as we should? Along those lines, do we take hell as seriously as we could, can, should? Um, I didn't count the number of times that Christ makes it clear repeatedly in his condemnations, in the parables in which he casts people into the darkness where they're going to gnash their teeth. Um, In John, um, he's going to speak directly in terms of evil, that he's dealing with the devil and you know that in one of the passages the people are going to accuse him of being possessed by a demon. So in that world, hell was real or probably more real then than it is for us. Do we because we live in a utopian world, and we do everything we can to deny a God, which means we don't look to heaven, we don't look to hell. Those I feel like we live in you know in the bread of life discourses, half the Jews or a lot of the Jews are going to leave. They're described as murmuring. When Christ says, "I'm the bread of life, eat me, drink me." they are so unnerved by that they, that they walk away. Do we live, <laughs> do we live in a murmuring world? Is our world, does it consist of murmuring people that we do everything we can to walk away from those things we can't control, particularly with the sciences, whatever control technology gives us over the world? Do we take hell as seriously as we should? Um, And finally, the last question that I asked that I think we ended on, can we find examples of events that make Christ's three temptations understandable? The question we, that I asked at the end and that we ended on, I was really glad for the discussion, is do we find those temptations in the events of Matthew? It's, I thought we did a good job of, I mean a roughly good job, we don't have much time, but to see that, that um, we face the, those same temptations, and one of the reasons they're in there is to help us understand what exactly Christ was facing and what we have to face. Do we really do we really see what those temptations are? Um, I would think that if we did, we would see we need Christ more than we do, because He faced them. Um, so, here's my last question, and it goes to the end of my notes if you got them. Here's what I'd like to ask everybody. I mean, this is where I'd like everybody's focus tonight, because it's 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 going to be the focus of my concern tonight. Um, If we set if we set all the um, events, all of the passages from the chapters from John that we have read tonight, if we set them against the events that took place in Matthew, that Matthew describes, what do we learn about the way John sees those events? He, he does something none of the synoptic gospels the gospel writers do. Not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke. He's doing something radically different. If we set his passages next to the passages from Matthew, what do we learn about the, the way we see Christ through John? Because I'm going to argue we see a dimension of Christ that we do not see in the synoptics. John is presenting things to help us see Christ in a different way. Can we name it? Do we see it? Okay. Um, okay. Let's, if you can just keep those... Um, I'll come to that and, and try to bring some clarity on it in just a minute in the rest of the outline. But let me let me stop. Any? Everybody got those questions? Anybody have questions about those questions? Okay, background quickly. Remember we've said now through all of Matthew that we have to be careful in reading Scripture because we live in a modern world in which intellectuals largely um, have done all they can to rationalize Scripture, to bring it under um, the perspectives of um, reason. New, particularly coming out of the sciences, historical, anthropological, linguistic, psychological—you name it—all of the disciplines that came out of the sciences in the end of the 19th century were brought to bear on scripture, and it encouraged people to explain scripture away. It was they read it like they'd read anything else? So there a whole modern tendency to deny miracles was introduced into the world. It's one of the reasons that people are leaving, the Protestant church, it's one of the reasons people are leaving. Why stick around? If the world outside the church is no different from, the, or the world inside the church is no different from the outside the church and the sciences sort of direct us in everything and if we just are patient enough we'll we'll improve our lives why stay in the church? The Catholic understanding is the Church is Christ, incarnate, on earth. The two principal parts of the Mass are the, the Word, the liturgy of the Word, the literature of the Eucharist, and both of them are one. The Word is living, so is the Eucharist. That's absolutely anathema to the world, because both of them rest on miracles the belief that God is speaking to us now, the belief that he is actually present, the real presence in the Eucharist. The, the, the world makes no place for those sorts of things. So, um, we have to be careful in the way we read scripture. Two revolutions took place, we've already gone through this. The Protestant Revolution had one, had, an, had the effect of, of making our approaches to Bible um, subjective. Whatever I want it to mean, it means, and relative, that people can have different opinions, and the fact that they contradict each other means nothing. So both of those qualities, subjectivism and relativism, have entered into not only our larger mindset, the way we look at everything in the world, but the way we read scripture. So the, the reconciliation between faith and reason has broken down. We're the only institution holding those two things together. Um, the two principles, just to recall quickly, we can't know God directly. hes I mean, just think about it. If the universe goes on forever, I mean, we don't have a sense of an end. Um, what does the infinite God who created this universe look like? Can we prove him? Can we know him? Thomas says rightly, I think, that we have two ways of knowing, a priori and a posteriori, um, causes and effects. We can't know God directly, except now through Christ, if we believe he's the Son of God. But we can know by effects, a posteriori. Um, If there are footprints in the sand, we can deduce correctly that somebody put them there. We, we may not be able to say anything about the person or who what that thing was, but we know something. So we have indirect ways of knowing God. Um, St. Thomas gives those wonderful proofs of God in the opening of the Summa. We can know him in other ways too. I mean, lots of thinkers have come up with other ways of knowing him, but we can't know him directly. The only way we can know him directly is through Christ. And lots of people, this is so amazing, lots of people since the founding of the Christian church believed that God was Christ was either man this is true he was either just a man an ordinary man the arian heresy or the sabellian heresy he was god the father in another mode and there's another i can't remember the name of it who believed that he was just an illusion so people attempted to explain Christ in lots of ways I think it's one of the reasons why Luke begins his gospel saying, there's so many different accounts of Christ. He wants to straighten things out and get clear. Because, as you can imagine, the world was running away with all these notions of who Christ was. All these books were written. The church had a terrible burden of trying to get clear on who Christ was. So we have to be careful um, I suggested three things that we could take out of Matthew that Jesus takes our humanity fully on. Remember, it begins with a genealogy. Christ identifies with that whole line. He came into that line to validate history and the the line that would produce him. And there were major points dividing it. David, the deportation, which were major times for the Jewish history, the, the Jewish world, the chosen people. Um that all of the events in Scripture are based in history and prophecy. Each one of the gospel, or the first three, the synoptic, start with an actual historical event and a prophecy. Matthew starts with the genealogy and the prophecy surrounding John, the birth of John and Jesus. Um, I'll get to the others in a second. And the third is that one of the things we take away from Matthew is that he is his gospel is the living word that, that whole gospel attempts to do justice to to make living the whole jewish past as its present in christ and everything he does um, the last thing to, um, to finish this review Last week I asked, um, what did we take away from Matthew? Um, why did Christ come? If we read the gospel, what can we say about him? I had a number of things. He makes clear that he um, came to help all people attain their salvation. We had lost our way from, from God. We, can't, we couldn't get back to him on our own. He had to come um, to answer for our sins. To become a Lamb of God, to be the sacrificial, to answer our injustice, to give satisfaction for that crime. An offering had to be made, and we couldn't make it because it was against God. So he came to help all people attain their salvation. It was a gift from the Father through his Son and the Spirit. He came for sinners. He came specifically, as we saw in Matthew, for the house of the chosen people. But what we saw in Matthew over the course of time is that um, Christ found himself being drawn into a Gentile world and moving out to it. Love, he could not resist love. The violent bear it away. Those people take it by force. That was that reading of Matthew. God, Christ, could not deny the love of other people. The Canaanite woman, to me, is one of the most stunning in all of Scripture you know um how did how did he put it even the servants eat the crumbs of the you know fall from the, table. the dogs eat the crumbs fall from the table how could christ refuse that woman <clears throat> with with such a love um he came to remind people to follow his father commandments because the whole jewish tradition had become overlaid trapped inside of all of these accretions these Things that added up, that got them farther and farther away from the Father and the commandments. Um, he kept warning us to be on guard, not to be led by false teachers, because um, he said, "Remember that um, sheep are often um, wolves in sheep's clothing. That that pe- you have to be careful. I mean, the priesthood, popes, ourselves." We have to be careful of each other. Um, but there's that, what is those line To be like the serpent, to be as wise as the serpent, as gentle as the dove. He's asking us to put our innocence away. We're supposed to be on, we're, the, the words of the church are vigilant. We are supposed to be on guard because evils all are, just where we think we've got control of things, it's probably where something's going on <laughs> we need to be careful about. He also makes it clear that if people are going to do these things, if they're going to follow him, they have to understand what he's doing, who he is. He takes pains everywhere, everywhere, particularly with his disciples, to help them understand what he's doing. Because so often they don't get it. They only partially get it. They they partially misread a lot. Um, So he does a lot of teaching. He's using stories constantly to help them understand. And he asks people to be perfect. He begins his ministry by calling people to repentance. And towards the end, he um, he asks them to be perfect. He wants to make the kingdom absolutely clear. He wants us to be very clear that hell is real. And at the very end of Matthew, he, he commands everybody to go out to convert, to do um, an evangelizing work, to bring Christ to the world. That's our command. It's like Jonah. We have to go to a world that's not going likely not going to like us. And he says, um, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, to believe in him is absolutely crucial. He says um, to observe all that he taught them he doesn't say just believe, although it's clear that he makes that the condition. Those who believe in him will have life. Here at the end he says, do all that I've taught you to observe, which means all of it. Do We have to do all those things. Okay. Now as a way of getting to John, let me just recall... Each of the Gospels starts with a different authority. It's absolutely crucial to see that. I've given the image of four people on corners watching an accident in the middle of the intersection. All four of them are going to see differently because all four of them have different personalities, different inclinations. But the point not to lose sight of, even if there are discrepancies or even contradictions, something took place objectively, real, in the middle of that intersection. Okay? Matthew begins with the genealogy and um, the baptism. It's the fulfillment of prophecies. So it's clear that he's making his account rest on the fulfillment of prophecies. Something that was prophesied comes to fulfillment. What God is doing is real now. That's the authority of Matthew. Mark begins with Isaiah's prophecy that a messenger would come to prepare. It begins with John's baptism again. Um, and um, you know that um, Christ is baptized, and after his baptism, he goes into the desert to face the temptations. So in both Matthew and Mark, after the baptism by John, Christ goes into the desert to deal with those temptations. So that's, and just So that's, in a sense, the beginning of his ministry. He faces those and then begins actively to do what he does with us. Luke begins with that wonderful account. um, And I just want to read it because it always I so enjoy it. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an ordinary account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. And he goes to the um, the prophetic experience Zechariah has with the angel coming to him, telling them that um, they will conceive a child, it will be John, and shortly after that... Um, the birth of Christ, but I want to um, I want to read I want to end this opening sort of overview of what we're doing by going back to Luke. Um, um, it was actually the reading when it was in the readings this last week, I think. Um, so after this beginning, when John or when Christ is baptized by John, that's the historic mark that's central to those. Jesus. Um, begins his ministry Um, in Luke 4 and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the desert he faces the temptation afterwards he returns to Galilee and this is what happens you all know this comes to Nazareth where he'd been brought up he went to the synagogue he stood up he was handed this book and he turns to, the, turns to Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. This is stunning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That means you can be in prison and not be in a prison. We can create our own prisons for ourselves. You know, we can be oppressed from without. We can be oppressed from within. To set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the accountable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They must have just been put into stillness in amazement. All spoke well of him. Oh, no. Um, all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That means the word that he's been speaking is now present and alive in him. So everything that was spoken of in the Old Testament, all the gospels have their center here. This is the word, um, he's bringing it to the world. Now, I want, to, I want to go to John at the, at the beginning and set out some very general things, but let me stop here for a second. Any questions or comments about anything? I mean, all of this is just review, but I, I really want all of us to try to hold on to a couple. Of, we're only going to do two Gospels, so to try to keep a larger whole with us in whatever we do. Any any questions or comments? Neil? Or
1: yeah. I was going to say, I'm sorry. The only only comment I'm thinking, I got some feedback online, uh, is who they were written to. You know, like John is, or Matthew writes to Jews who know the scriptures, who know prophecy. And then John is writing to everyone else in the universe. And then you have Luke, he writes to Greeks, and Mark writes to the Romans, and they don't know much about scripture. So I always find that very interesting on how they say their words and how what they focus on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's true, Pat. I, um, I mean, there, I think there are two things to keep in mind whenever we're reading Scripture, and one of them is the, the biblical scholars have certainly pushed this a lot, you know, who they're writing. I, I just think we should be careful because one of the motives of what they're doing is sort of reductive to reduce it to something, again to rationalize it. Um, A case can be made that's a real case that each of the gospel writers has a different audience and they do. Um, John will have a, I'll I'll get to in a second, John will have a little bit different one. But I think it's really important to see that while they're writing to specific or with certain audiences and certain limitations you know that are inherent in the situation, they're writing to everybody that there's, there's, there is something universal about what happened with Christ. And um, the, 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 the thrust of certainly Matthew at the end was go out and baptize all the world, which meant all the apostles were going to have to go into a world which knew nothing about the Jews or the Gentiles. And in John's case, they knew nothing about a, a Hellenic, a Hellenized world. I'll get to that in a second. They knew nothing about those, and still the apostles, the disciples, had to go out and bring something because that word, even, however much it was limited by its audience, was meant to be universal. It was meant to be, it was given to all people. So it's important that it be received that way because we're taking Christ seriously. What, what we're facing is the same thing the disciples face. We're supposed to take Christ with us wherever we go. If we up in a just, I mean, I was in a hospital several months ago talking with nurses, and if you could imagine me there, I mean, there were we had some long talks that were really interesting. I was in a hospital where nobody's going to talk about Christ. We did. If if I were in Africa, there's no way I would not be doing something to communicate with the people who, with whom I shared no language. That we have we have to take to see that there's something universal. And he's the word. He's the beginning of it. He's the beginning of all languages. John is going to make that clear in what we do. So it's true. Each of them had a different temperament, a different inclination. They were far more conscious of certain aspects of their audience, like the Jews in some cases or the Gentiles. Um, um, but but they always also had to make clear as clear as they could anyway to everybody what they were talking about let's go to John let's go to John okay for me this is the most important thing to see about John wait let me let me wait on this wait no I'm two two important things the most important things about John most important the one, John does something none of the synoptical gospel writers do. He brings a metaphysical order down to earth. He in, he uses that to encompass everything he says. Now stop and think about the implications of that because that to me is absolutely radical. He doesn't begin, here, we've read novels together, you all know that. Get a novelist who's writing, take Jane Austen, take Dickens. doesn't matter. If you get a novelist writing about something, they're writing about something. These historical events took place. Here's what's happened, here's what's happened. So they're all rooted in history. Christ entered time, he was a part of this line. Um, John was born, Christ was born. John doesn't begin like that. John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't start in history. He starts in a metaphysical condition. In the beginning was God, and his Son was one with him. He was God. He was the Word. So in some sense, I mean, to put it as clearly as I can, you know I've gone through the Trinity. Christ is the Father's concept. The Father conceives of himself. That concept is Christ. The love between them is the Spirit. That's the Trinity. Here John is saying the Word is God's speaking of himself. He's God. He's the Word. It's like everything that's intelligible, God is him. So he doesn't begin in a historical event. He begins with a metaphysical event. He takes us to an ontological realm and and he makes clear that he's going to encompass everything in that and we're expected to follow him. Now the implications of that are going to be extraordinary when we go through the Gospel. So John is beginning with something, so Pat, to go to your, John is beginning with something the Greeks would have, or educated Greeks, John is beginning with something an educated Greek would have known. We knew this from Homer. And the Greek poets that we read, Sophocles and Aeschylus and all of them, Plato, Aristotle. What they called a logos. The Greek world understands the notion of the Logos was their way of describing a word described that there was this rationality to nature everywhere there was a reason there was an intelligibility some meaning in every it could be a flower it could be a tree you know that in the Greek world a, a tree had to possess a god the druids and the seas were named by gods and goddesses and, because God was everywhere everything in nature had meaning and it was vital there was a divine aspect to it. They called that the Logos. They didn't understand Christ, but they had intimations of him. We've been dealing with it since we started with the alien. There are these intimations of Christ everywhere in nature. In a scientific world, the, the tendency to look at, at the world is in terms of abstractions and see things in terms of atoms or forces interacting. But there's not a God there. So the difference between a pagan world and a modern world is radical. But John does not begin in a historical event. And he lines up his description of God with light. A light that came in to deal with the darkness and the darkness won't overcome it. So one of its identifying qualities is light. That is, this is the unapproachable light of the Father. He To look on the face of God? I mean, remember the pagans who tried to do that got burnt to a crisp. It's only through a cross, it's only by virtue of doing something with the help of the sacraments that we can approach God. He's identified with light, he's identified with the power of purification, and he's identified um, as the sacrificial lamb. Because after he baptizes Christ, the very next day Christ is walking by him and he says, There goes the Lamb of God. How did John say that? How did he know that? He doesn't call him Jesus. He doesn't call him Christ. He says, There's the Lamb of God. That's the Paschal sacrifice. How did he know that? That that creature, that human being, that man walking was going to be the means of salvation. Everything that John said made clear he had a sense of this ontological condition. Um, He came after me. He existed before me. He was before me. I'm not fit to tie his shoes. I baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Spirit that comes from God. Everything that John said makes clear that a metaphysical order has entered nature. Through this person. So everything that he presents is sort of enveloped, infused with this divine order. It's one of the reasons, and here's where, just hold off, Mark hold on. I'm going mark just hold on to yourself for a while. It's one of the reasons why Christ in this, I mean, set, set, set Matthew, for example. Set Matthew next to this. You almost cannot read a chapter in John, or at least in the first chapters that we're doing. You'll find it runs through it. You cannot find him talking about anything except in terms of the Father. Why does he keep bringing the Father into his discussion? He's not teaching by parables. He doesn't do that. Everything he does is framed in terms of his Father. This other order. So everything John is doing is is showing, I mean to go to your point, I don't want to overstress it Pat, but it shows a Hellenic grasp of what one of the legacies of the Greek world to us was this metaphysics from Plato and Aristotle that there's this metaphysical order, this logos, that permeates the world. So the most important thing in approaching John is that we see that what he's doing at the beginning radically colors everything he does afterwards we'll see it once we get into it we're going to be there just a minute Mm -hmm. so wait so he's identified with the light darkness will not overcome it Um, he's a source and power for purification he's the he's the lamb of god Um, this is act one line 35 the next day again john was standing with two of his disciples he looked at jesus as he walked and said behold the lamb of god it's just after the baptism. And repeatedly in John, we, we, I don't remember the word miracle, and I may have just... But he constantly uses the word signs, that there are these constant signs. And it's clear from the way that he uses them that signs make manifest a miracle, a miraculous order entering nature. And what we see in these signs is God is at work. He, once again, it's not like a tsunami, tsunami force or a deus ex machina. It's God entering the human order and working with it in a way that's, that brings to fulfillment something in the human order. So, example, for example, the first sign occurs when he goes to the wedding feast and Mary says they have no wine and he, he transforms the water into wine. So he takes a natural thing like water and he doesn't make it something that we're not going to another planet we're not in a fictional world he produces something of this order that's this great blossoming or super addition to keep this thing in nature but make it something glorious like wine. Um if, if you've got my notes, you know that two of the organizing principles of John is that um, Christ performs all these signs. I, if you've got my notes, you've got a list of them. I think there's seven there. Um, I've, I've got to watch as I go on because I'm, I'm trying to stay current with you guys. And, um, so we'll see as we go along. And the other thing to keep in mind is that repeatedly through John, We keep getting Christ talking about it in terms that remind us of the Father. When the Father says, I am that am. When Yahweh names himself in the Old Testament, he says, I am that am. He's being itself. He's uncreated being. He is. And Christ keeps speaking of himself in terms of I am. I am this, I am, I am. Um, He he says he um, he came after David. And he was I am before him. So to situate it in him time is always difficult because while he's in time, he's also something more. He's that still point. He's God incarnate here. Um Okay, let me let me stop. Doc you had something? Go ahead. I
1: just wanted to Sometimes I get confused listening to you. If, if you say John the Baptist and
0: John the Evangelist are uh, two different people. Yeah, and you've got them. Does everybody does er, I, is is everybody okay on that 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 there's John the Baptist who begins all of this historically, but John the Evangelist who's writing about John the Baptist and all that begins with John and Christ with the baptism and all that Christ goes on to do hmm okay let me let me um, go where I would and um, um, I want to just briefly recount the episodes without going into them okay just to uh, give a summary view of one through seven in chapter one we got a prologue to all of John we've got John's description of the Word and its identification with light, um, and the power of it, and here, in fact, let me read it to to get it out. I'm going to read the whole of the prologue just to establish this. Okay. Um, I'm I'm probably going to do more reading than I'm used to doing, and I, I don't so I don't see any way around it. Um, if you can hold off questions for a bit, let did me try to get through you, some things.
1: Did you get back to Mark?
0: the beginning of John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made that's why we keep using the that I've used that phrase the um, animi christiani you know the natural human soul that the imago Dei that God is imaged in everything the order, the symmetry, the beauty. um, He's imaged everywhere. There's nothing that's been made that doesn't have his mark. That's That's John's claim. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. So he is the light, the way he is to help us see. It's as if we're living in darkness and we need him. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John bore witness to him and cried, John the Baptist, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. It reminds me of Isaiah. He knows all of this before it happens. Where did the knowledge come from? He who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. And from his fullness have we all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is the only Son, is not two, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Goes to the prophet um, when people are or go sorry to John the Baptist. People coming to him asking, "Are they see Elijah? Who is he?" He describes himself in turning in terms of Christ again. Um, Um, about line 26, we're still in one. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me. The thong whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards them and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is He of whom I said. I think one of the important things to see here. I mean, if you go back to Isaiah, because I'm I'm not aware of anybody who sees it as clearly as I mean, we've got lots of prophets, but um, John is saying this like Isaiah. He's seeing things other people don't know. So, and I, I I want to reinforce this now because in one sense he's doing what John the evangel the gospel writer is doing. He sees in this man. A whole ontological order, a whole metaphysical order, at work, present. What he's seeing is not what other people see. Or he couldn't describe these things. He'd have no way of doing it. Um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this, for this I came baptizing with water that he might re- be revealed to Israel. He had a call. He knew it. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see, the Spirit descend and remain. This is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing. He says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." This is when the disciples begin to gather. Um, it ends the first chapter, just to finish the first chapter, and recalls Peter and Philip and um, Nathaniel and Philip together. Um, When Philip is brought to him, um, Christ says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed. Nathaniel. Sorry, what what did I say? um, Nathaniel says to him, How do you know me? Christ answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under a fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Strange things are happening here. Some of these people see more than others. And I hope that's clear. It says we all have eyes, we all look the same, we're all humans. Um, um, but we're seeing different powers of perception that there's, there is another world, another metaphysical dimension that's at work um, and that some people see. Okay, let me stop. This is the that's the opening. And I I'd hold on to that opening because I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Chapter two, he goes to Cana and performs the miracle of turning the water into wine. In chapter three, Nicodemus comes and asks him, because he's this is Nicodemus, it's a Roman centurion, I think. He asks Christ how he can do all these things that he's heard about. How can somebody be reborn <laughs> this, this is wonderful. How can somebody be reborn? <laughs> You jump back into your mother's womb. Um, and Christ makes thanks. Christ makes clear that um, he says, no one has ascended into heaven but he who's descended. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that one is born again. So he makes clear that there is a transcendent spirit working in humans to help them do things that the spirit on earth can't. As Moses lifted up the serpent, the Son of Man may be lifted up, that whoever believes will have eternal life. Um, in chapter four, um, as the Pharisee forces are starting to gather around him, he leaves. He meets with a Samaritan woman. You all know. He asks for a drink, and he makes clear to her that um, who he is. And before he leaves, he um, he he lets it be known to her that he knows about her five husbands and she's shocked and then she realizes that she's in the presence of this person who says he's the living springs of water he will give her um, eternal water she goes into the village and she talks about what she's just experienced and she says can this be the Christ and people began to believe I want to read this just because I want to try to take advantage of this before we settle on the questions that I have. Um, After this episode when they learn what had happened with the woman they're returning with food because they've gone into the city to get food. This is Act 4 about verse 30, 31 or so. They bring the food back and they say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him food? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months when comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. These men are looking around and they're seeing what they were nearly seeing, and he's saying, Look around! Lift up your eyes and see how the harvest. The fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The Samaritans believe his words. Um, he goes... Um, back to Galilee and Canaan, revisits them. And this is when the official comes to him and says that his son is dying. Can you heal him? And Christ recognizes the man's faith and says, your son is healed. This is the end of Act 4. Um, As the man was returning, his servants met him and told him that his son was living. So he asked them the hour when he began to mend. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. That was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. So that's chapter 4. In chapter 5, he heals the man at the Bethsaida pool. Remember, he lets everybody to know that the hour is coming. Um... And he says to the people, I think this is a crucial passage, this is in 5, about line um, uh, 36. He makes clear about line 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, he will be gone. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He goes on, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, he said. Um, When all the tombs will open, I can do nothing on my own. He says he's here to bear witness to his Father. Line 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has granted me to accomplish, these very works which I am doing, bear me witness that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness to me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. Remember, I mean, it was a it was a consistent theme of Matthew, the the traditions, the way they read Scripture, but they misread it all the time. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it sola scripture coming out of the Reformation. It's they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know that you have not the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Go down. How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes um, from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. It is Moses who accuses you. If you believe in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, that if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words. Six begins, after this Jesus went to the other side of Galilee, a multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he did on those who were... Um, In chapter six, he feeds the six thousand... When he's done, the disciples go into the boat to cross the lake. A storm comes up and they suddenly see Jesus walking on the water. This is about 620 or so. They were frightened, but he said to them, It's I, do not be afraid. Do not." That was Pope John's. Be not afraid, do not be afraid. Over and over, fear not, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, when he sees that the men are thinking about um, the bread, this um, he begins to identify himself with the bread of life. This is the important bread of life discourse that's so central to, to everything that John does in this gospel. Um, so let me go through some of this. I know you all know it, but I'm, I'm trying to get to the best of what John is doing that, that makes this so remarkable. Um, um, Jesus said, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him has the God, God the Father, set His seal. When they said to Him, What must we do? Go down. What, what? Then what sign do you do? What may we see? Our fathers ate the manna. He said, um, He gave them bread. This is Jesus' response. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven. That's Christ. The bread of life comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Go down. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. The Father is the creation through Christ. These are We're all his children. He wants to lose no one. It is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's a condition of returning I will raise him up at the end. The Jews murmur against this. Um, He answers them, Go down, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Go down, truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us this flesh to eat? You can imagine, they're horrified at that. He says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has has eternal life, and I will raise him up. This is in the synagogue. This is a year before the Last Supper. This is all taking place a year away. Um, the disciples are responding and they say, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Because you know that to eat blood or f- was an, um, a sacrilege, it was an outrage. So hearing these things, they're shaken and they walk away. Um, um, For Jesus knew from the first those who were, that did not believe and who it was that should betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, "Will you also go?" And Simon says, um, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and they believe." The last chapter. Um, this is when they return to Judea. Christ knows that that the the the, the circle of of the priest and and. Um, and um, the Pharisees are, it's closing in around him. Um, he tells his disciples to attend the Feast of the Tabernacle. And um, he comes and says, this is about, this is in 7 now. My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. He's saying this to the disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its works are evil. Go to the feast yourselves," he says. He's not. He goes to the temple and um, teaches. Um, and he says about line twenty-two: Moses gave you circumcision, not fathers, or not that, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man upon the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may be not may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He lets them know that he's going to be with them um, a while longer. Um, This is about 7.30... He says, um, on the last day of the feast, the great day, this is of the same feast, he stands up in the temple, proclaims, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. Now let me stop. So this is roughly a summary of all that takes place from one to seven. We don't get a lot of episodes um, showing Christ healing. We don't get a lot of episodes with his teaching. Um, what do we get? So here's my question, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to just open it generally. I've, I've got some passage, specific passages I want to go to. What's John doing that's so different from what... This is seven chapters. I would venture to say I'd, I could be... like make a bet with Mark, I'll probably lose more money already um, than I already have. But um, I venture to say that in the first seven chapters of Matthew we'd get um, numerous descriptions of miracles and parables and close to that. What's John different? How, what's doing, what is John doing that's different and why is it important? Wow. No. Pat, do you have any you look very, very thoughtful? Pat, are you there? Looks like the t- camera's frozen. Um, Fred, have any what's your response to how what's John doing that that's different from what Matthew's doing? Well, I, my perception, you know, from what I've learned
2: since I became a Catholic, is that uh, I think John really goes right to the heart of who Christ truly is. You know, you're not really trying to draw the conclusion from the miracles or the things that He does. I think, I think, really, John probably. Lays the basis for the Trinity over the course of the Gospel. A lot of the the, the things that he says draws you straight there, um, and I, I really think the whole first seven chapters really speak straight to the heart of who Christ really is. You know, he is he is fully divine as well as as human, and he and he even says it himself very clearly, Yep. Uh, where in some of the other, in the Synaptic Gospels, he may allude to it sometimes, but if you're really listening in, in John, he's he's very clear about it. Yep, Yeah. So there's no question that, um, you know, he is not only human, but completely divine, sent by the Father, the Word of the Father. Um, you know, part of the Trinity. All that becomes, you know, very clear, and and it's all about having, you know, like the the miracles are really kind of focused on faith. Um, people realizing uh, that he is in fact the Son of God. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I that's that's kind of what I I I get out of it is that you know there's no you have to draw your own conclusion kind of thing it's it's right out there and
0: right right you're, right oops
1: i got disconnected there
0: yeah i saw pat i'm glad you're back i i think mark mark are you are you back or i think he got frozen out too
1: yeah
0: pat do you have any um anything to add to what fred said
1: i didn't hear what fred oh, said oh
0: sorry I, yeah um, Fred can you encapsulate that can you summarize that just briefly sorry
1: it's so weird what ha- why does that do that
0: I don't know I don't even but bo- just can Fred can you summarize it so Pat can... I'll, I'll, I'll just make it a lot shorter uh, I think in John uh
2: it it becomes very clear very quickly who Christ truly is is his divinity mm-hmm. in the synoptic gospel sometimes we have to kind of draw that conclusion from from what's said or done. But in John, it's very, very clear. It kind of hits you right in the face.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's
0: true. How does he, God, I'm sorry, I just do not want to lose Mark right now. Um, to, to help get at this, can either one of you or, or um, Francis, um, please come in on this. How does John do this? How? It's just a very different presentation. And to me, it's remarkable what he's doing. Um, how does he do this? It To me, it's sort of obvious, and I mean, I don't do I'm not a biblical scholar, so I don't look into this. But my background in literature, I think, has helped me. I'm amazed to see him doing things, and I'm not at least, when you know, the little bit of research that I've gone online every once in a while to just see what people are doing. I've not seen anybody talk about these things. It's, they just sort of take things for granted and make these claims. But John is doing something very different from the other, from certainly from Matthew. How is he doing this, what Fred is talking about? How does he do this? It's, 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 almost, it's
2: almost through other people realizing what it is. What it is, he is, he is observing the act of faith in, in other people. Whether it's John the Baptist, the woman at the well, yep. uh, the people at Cana. He is observing other people, knowing that he is who he is, without really having the right to know other than, you know, m- infected by the Holy Spirit.
0: Pat, go ahead. You had something.
1: Well, the only thing I was reading one of these uh, websites that I go to occasionally, it says, John also emphasizes the fact of Jesus' humanity, desiring to show the error of a religious sect of his day, the Gnostics, who did not believe in Christ's humanity. So he was bringing out mostly the human part of
0: who Jesus is. Or both. I mean, to Fred's point a minute ago, was that he more than Mark Matthew, and I think Fred's right. I've got a question about these comments on agnostic, but that's a bigger, but Fred's point was, and I think he's right, that everything that John does makes clear Christ's divinity, mm-hmm. you know, um, but but I think you're right, though, and this is what, this goes to my question, how does John do it? Um, we never lose sight of the fact that who this person is who's doing these amazing things, and I think they're more amazing than John because he does make it clear, is that he's fully human. He's so completely human. The Gnostics in that time who lived in their heads, who demeaned the body, would have wanted to downplay that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they did, I mean, interesting, they would have ended up downplaying both the divinity of Christ and his humanity. You, you can't do away with one of them without doing away with the other because he's fully both. Here, let me, let me go to this to try to... Because this to me is sort of amazing. I've already read the beginning. So hold, if everybody could hold on to this for a minute because we're getting to the end. In the prologue, he 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 speaks these words that I've read. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through Him all things are made. He, go, he brought the light. It's through Him the light comes. He was in the world. The world knew Him not. The darkness won't overcome Him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace. This is he of whom is said. He who... So one, one thing he's doing is he's giving a metaphysical account. He's not giving us an episode. He begins his gospel with a metaphysical account. So his frame of reference is metaphysical. It's not earthly. This is the word who was with God from the beginning. That's absolutely metaphysical. We are not in the world in those words. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is in the beginning with God. This is the Son of the uncreated Father. He's with the Father in spirit. So what he does that the other gospel writers don't do is he explains quite openly who this person is. So he immediately introduces an ontological, metaphysical order that he brings into every account. Now watch what he does. I mean, let me just, I'm going to take two examples here. Just, um, if I can take the, take the Samaritan woman. This is amazing. Um, Christ comes and she says to him, so here we're in an actual historical event. Christ is engaging with the Samaritan woman. As a matter of fact, he's not with the chosen people. Now he's with the Samaritan. Again. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask a drink of me? A woman, he's doing something that's unheard of. Jews have no dealings with us. she says. He says, give me a drink. What gets introduced into this conversation that I don't think we hear in the other Gospels, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, his sons, cattle? Jesus said, to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall give him will um, become in him that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life." She says, "I want that water." Now hold on to that. What just happened here that we don't get in Matthew? He goes on to talk about the Father. He talks about the husbands. Um, And he goes on to say, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming now, um, which the true worshipers will worship the Father. He's bringing up the Father again and again and again. I know the Messiah is coming. He's, he's called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's another one of those I ams. He gives that description of the white. Um, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white. The Samaritans began to believe in him. Go to seven to the very end where we read this is the last day of the feast when he stands up and he says if anyone thirst let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water now this is he who said about the Spirit. this is John not Christ this is John commenting. now this he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is John doing that the that Matthew or the other synoptic gospel writers are not doing? Francis, are you there? Is she around, Fred? She had, to, she had to go take a phone call from oh. the kid. Go ahead, Fred, you had something. Go ahead.
2: Well, it, it, it's almost... It's almost a question from an observation, I guess. What 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 I what I think John is clearly doing that I, I don't really get as much of in the synaptic gospels is we witness real people of different backgrounds. Uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who oh. Managed to see was he a what other was that, Pharisees, did a, Pharisee? a Pharisee or a Sadducee? I think no, he was yeah, a Pharisee. Yeah, I think yeah, 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 yeah. And he was able; uh, he was fairly high up because that's
0: right. That's you know, right. He was
2: able to to get Christ the, the tomb, and yet he was able to see what other Pharisees and Sadducees could not see: the 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 Canaan woman, uh, John the Baptist. Um, all of the individuals that John points to in his gospel were somehow willing to see, or were, were able to see something that so many other Jewish people couldn't could not see, and, and and some non-Jews, obviously. So, so the question the question is, what is what is What is you know clearly John is trying to show us the the divinity and the humanity of Christ through the eyes of other people who have encountered him and see what other people didn't see. The question is, what what was it? What, what did they have that so many other people didn't have that with their brief encounter with Christ realized that he was in fact the Messiah, the Son yeah. of God. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, the easy answer is the Holy Spirit, but but the real question is were they were they more open? Less biased? Uh, what was it about more more willing to accept the mystic? I mean you know, not not so tied down with the hardcore laws of Moses. I mean what what was it? That enabled them to see what
0: others couldn't. Yeah, because I want some of that water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and that bread. Oh, Fred, that's a one here. I, I mean that that to me is a, a tougher question. Let me. take We're almost out of time. Let me. Let me just follow up on the question that I was asking, and then put it back to you because I I just want this to be clear before we go on one of the things that John is doing um, is through these exchanges he's, he's remember he's writing he's, he's a reporter, he's representing like a reporter, a, a newspaper reporter he's describing things unfolding but he does it in a very different way from the synoptic gospel writers first of all he introduced this metaphysical perspective so we know that we have to bring this to, so part of the answer Fred, really, really interesting and goes to Pat's comment. There was a whole Hellenic view of the world that people had we inherited from the Greeks that contained a metaphysical way of looking at things. So the Greeks would have been far more... It would have been far easier for them to be receptive of this, say, than a Jew who's stuck in the law. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I... The, the point that I want to just insist on here to get really clear on, what... What John does after that opening prologue when he when he introduces this metaphysical way of looking at the world that, that belonged to that Greek world is that he shows these exchanges. He's a reporter. It could be with John, it can be with the Samaritan Woman, it can be with Nicodemus. I mean, take all of those, the uh, the man at the well, or I mean the pool. Every one of them, he shows an exchange between this person and Jesus, and in that pers in that exchange, Christ speaks speaks words that reveal that metaphysical order again and again and again none of the other gospel writers do that they'll describe him healing somebody and go on in these we've got the Word of God the Word explaining himself describing himself and then you've got John at the I mean just as an example as I gave you at the end of seven um, you've got John going Christ getting up and saying anybody who thirsts you know here it is and John saying this is John now this he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified he's interpreting he's explaining an act he's offering an explanation that goes to a metaphysical order it's in terms of the spirit so John constantly presents these exchanges between Christ and somebody, and in those, Christ is constantly using words, and they repeatedly, this is my next question, repeatedly bring in the Father. Um, let me just go back to... Um, you could... I mean, you, almost anyone, um, again and again, Son of God, for the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life... Over and over and over again, he keeps talking about the Father. You, um, Repeatedly. You almost can't turn a page and find it. So, one of the things that John is doing is presenting Christ, explaining himself. This is the Logos, making clear his principle. So, he himself is reinforcing this sense of a metaphysical order at work here. Now, here's my question before we go back to Fred's, because I, I, Fred's comment to me is really profound it's just a really good question I don't want to duck it here Fred but, but before we go there why does Christ keep framing his answers again and again and again in terms of the Father why does he do that because it's constant
2: I think because he's demonstrating that he is in fact the word of God Sure, I say it again, he's what? That he is in fact the word of God. And that he oh. he is basically God speaking to his people. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, I think it's a rem- that I in terms of the way that I'm trying to present it here, he, he it's, never it's thing, Go ahead, Fred. It's one
2: thing if a teacher of mathematics tries to teach you how to do math. It's another thing if the person who discovered math is teaching it to you. <laughs> it is a totally different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one thing for some it's one thing for a Pharisee or a Sadducee to try to tell you about God. It's a whole other thing when God's telling you about God.
0: Yeah. And and yes, and and to yes, absolutely. And to just reinforce this point, he never, he never lets us forget that that metaphysical order is always present his father is there so even if we think of the father as you know still outside of time because Christ is not the father he's the son the father is in his dimension that he is present so through this whole seven chapters we we can't read a passage without feeling that everything going on involves this other metaphysical order always Christ is making it real in, in everything he says. Constantly. He doesn't want to take credit. He 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 just keeps saying, the Father, the Father, the Father. So there are the, the Father, the Word of the Father, the Word of God, is present, which means the dimension of the Father. That whole metaphysical order is present now there. Now, the other question that Fred is asking, which to me is pretty tough, is Why does so? Let me Well, let me ask: Why do some people see it and others don't? But before we do that, is everybody? Does anybody have any questions about what's John doing and how he does it that makes this gospel so different from the Synoptic Gospels? That's just got to be crucial. Because remember, I've from the wait, wait, sorry, Pat. Because I've said from the beginning, we have got to learn to read each thing on its own terms. We cannot make it something it's not. This is what John's doing. This is how he's doing it. It just has to be seen, or we will miss so much of what's going on. Sorry, Pat, go ahead.
1: No, my only comment was pretty much on Fred's is that to me, he's speaking the words that he clearly got from the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because he's saying stuff that the other three didn't really say, and so he is much closer. I guess that's God's way of making sure that of all the four getting out there that it gets to the wide variety and lets him speak differently on through the spirit is what I would think
0: and the father
1: and the father yeah, yeah.
0: he can't we, I mean he asks us to see that right. there's nothing he's doing nothing that isn't a reflection of the father right we, so we, we have must to... have
1: meditated on those words and had it come to him and all that
0: you know, the wonderful thing, to go back to your comment, imagine a Jewish audience, I mean truly, imagine a Jewish audience that had been raised on the Father and knew nothing about the Son. I'm saying this very very seriously. Imagine a Jewish audience who had been raised loving Yahweh and increasingly over time moving away from Him because all these traditions that I mean, these are not the real, not, not Yahweh's tradition, not the law, the commandments, but these accretions, everything that the Jews had added up. The they were beginning to distant the Father. Without a metaphysical posit- perspective that John makes clear that's going on with Christ, could they go back to the Father? And how would the Jews have heard this when their love was a Father and they began to pull away? And everything that Christ is doing, the miracles he's performing, the signs that he's doing, are he's saying, these are all the Father. Mm-hmm. So he's appealing to a Gentile audience who wouldn't be a part of that tradition, but the Jewish people hearing that have, have got to hear a wonderful inspiration for their tradition that everything they believed in is has been real, even if you know it's been distorted. They have a reason now for taking seriously what this man is saying. Sorry, Fred. So to go and Fred, go ahead. You've got well, I it had to be hard for
2: them, right? I mean they've been punished for years for putting other idols before God, right? and then all of a sudden here's someone that they haven't made the connection with that's not God that's, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to tell them that he, he he is of God he's the son of God, the word of God and I mean for centuries these They've been <laughs> they've been, been, held captive by the Babylonians. They've been in the desert for 40 years. I mean, yeah. all because they were... Totally, the Roman
0: occupation. It, they were, you know... They, the Greek occupation, had, yeah.
2: Got lost track of things and yeah. started worshiping other yeah. idols and yep. stuff. So yep, I can, yep, if you know, yep. they, they learned their lesson the, the truly mm-hmm. hard way. And I can, I can understand, in a way, how it must have been very difficult for them. And, and the question, I guess the question is, why were why were some able to make the transition and, and some not? I I think, in part, that's why it was easier for the Greeks, because they didn't have all of that centuries of hardcore yeah. training, if you will.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and a big question. Yeah. Maybe more yeah. receptive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. truly. Anyway. Yeah, no, big question always. I remember we had Father John here ages ago and I was making the point that it would have been easier for the group, because you know we've done the Iliad, we've done the, home, we've done the Greek world. The, one of the principal things that we learn in the Iliad Odyssey is how open some men were to the gods. You know, When, when Odysseus sets off, all the suitors, they don't pay attention, they don't hear, they just, all of them. Wait, wait. Um, there's an openness. When you think about the Jews saying you don't put an image in the tabernacle because that's idolatrous. That the Greek world, the leg, one of the great things about that legacy is that they did give us this metaphysical view that um, help, helped us to connect these two worlds, to bring this and that together. So when Christ is saying all of these things and constantly repeating them and ter- framing them in terms of the Father, I can't hear that without just shaking my head in wonder. Saying, you know, he, He's doing everything He can to make everybody know. That other dimension is alive and at work here. Do you see it? Let me stop there but because I, I want to go to give you guys the last word on this because we're out of time. And let me give it to Pat before you come in, in again. But I thought Fred's question was a good one. Why were some of these people, because we're talking about largely about Jews, it, it's particularly if you go to Matthew, because Matthew, you know, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Anne, all of them, Simeon, Anne, Um, the the Pharisees and Sadducees were rejecting Christ right and left, some Jews were not. Um, Why were some people able to see these things, to see that something more was going on right in front of them, the way that John presents it, and others not? I thought it was such a good question. Pat, you have a thought on that before we leave? No, just
1: you know, like I say, it's it's like you say, Some like you, everybody interprets something a little bit different from their background. And so what might be an aha moment for me might not be one for somebody else hearing it. And I don't know, I just think they were so ingrained in scripture that anything outside of scripture was like, well, I don't know if I believe all that. And so hearing it outside of Scripture and tradition is probably a little shaky for them, I would imagine.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things you have to admit here when you look at the people is, it's not just that some people are open. I mean, that's a way to say it. It has to be said. But some people are adamant in in just refusing to make a place for it, condemning Mm -hmm. him, wanting to kill him. Right. You know, so... Fred, any last thoughts? I just think it was a really good question again. Do you have a, any thoughts on it before we stop? I I think I've used them all up tonight. <laughs> Doug, do you have any thoughts on Fred's? No, I think Fred's point was really well taken. Oh. Can you hear Doug? I,
1: uh,
0: no, I... Can you speak? Sorry, up?
1: I think Fred's... I
0: hear a voice top. in the darkness, but that's it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think Fred's comment about how the Jews the believing Jews um, had been trained the hard way to be very careful about who they were willing to worship and that the Gentiles, the Greeks, didn't have that same training and so in some ways it was easier for them to move toward Christ um, I just—I've never thought about that. I think that's a really good point.
0: Let me add a qualification to everybody to Pat's comment and yours, Fred, and what Suzanne is saying. Um, you know, none of our generalizations are going to cover these things. They're, you know, they're just generalizations. They're—it's hard to go to specifics. What we do know generally is that some people were open and a lot of people not. And I would say that would have been true for the Greek world as well. But but let me, let me try to take off if I can from the points both of you are making or all three of you. It seems to me that one of the interesting things about um, scripture particularly let's say if you end the, the Old Testament with Maccabees where it ends you've got the Greek world encroaching on the Jewish conquering and forcing the Jews to worship other gods. You've always got a small group of people refusing to give in. That's Been the case through almost all Jewish history, this remnant—you know, while lots of them were folding and giving in to other gods and worshiping other gods—and before the deportation and you know all that happened, there generally is a small group of people who hold on more tightly, more closely. That I think I think it's fair to say, and, and I mean again we're dealing with generalizations. I think it's fair to say of the Greek, the Hellenic world, the Gentiles too. The Gentiles would have been looking for something, but the Greek world um, grew up with a sense of the gods and being open. It's just a question for me. All I can do is throw in a question to, to together with Fred's. that How many of the Hellenized Greeks would have been open to Christ? I mean, there would have been some who would have been far more open. I can imagine some who would have been Neoplatonists and Platonists who would have hard, had a hard time believing in Christ because of the abstract nature of their minds. So once again we're, we're just limited by our generalizations. You can say lots about both worlds but one of the things I think you have to say and I think Fred was suggesting this Fred correct me here is something of the Spirit is going on here somewhere whatever you say some people in both worlds the Jewish world, the Gentile world, the Hellenic world. Some people were far more receptive. And I'm saying that particularly with Matthew in mind and all the miracles. Because when Christ was performing miracles, I'm just stunned. Because you can't read Matthew without having all these miracles. It's very different from John. And you see Jews coming over in hordes. The ordinary common person in in Judah and Jerusalem, then the ordinary people were flocking to him, absolutely flocking. It was the educated people who denied him and and would only see bad where the other people were seeing something miraculous was going on. And I just wonder how true that is in the Gentile. I can't speak for it. I don't know. But it's interesting to see how ordinary people um, were willing to see the miracles and make a place for them, and how the educated people, p- particularly the, the the Jewish hierarchy, did not. They they had a religious investment to protect. I think that's one of the reasons Paul said the veil has fallen over the Jews, and it's a it's a serious reason for asking the question: Has the veil fallen? Is the veil fallen over? the Christian world today, you know, in being open to all that we're learning from John, that that, metaph- that nothing goes on in this world, absolutely nothing, that doesn't have the Father participating in it. Is our faith strong enough to see it? Do we see it? And it seems to me that, that question is um, intensified, reinforced with John, Because the whole point of what he's doing is we can't he shows Christ through these exchanges. Christ is not teaching. He's these are dramatic exchanges. That's what it's like a play. There are these dramatic exchanges, except in each one of them Christ explains himself. He's showing there is this whole other dimension to what's going on. So the scene involving the Samaritan woman that we get in Matthew is just deepened, deepened and amplified here. There was a lot going on that Matthew doesn't show, John does. Um, Do we see? Do we see? (laughs) And right now, Fred, I mean, my heart is sort of leaping because because you you know, Pat, you I mean you're just joining us, which I'm I'm so I'm I'm being really honest. I'm so glad you're here. Fred's had the patience or endurance to stay with us from the beginning and you know I mean he's he's he brings to it a, a perspective of the hundred books that we got the hundred books that we've done together so there's just a whole larger dimension that John brings because he includes this whole other area you know and it, it just it raises the question I mean I, I the, the, the the question that I'm raising: Where's our faith? Do we see it? And along with that, Fred's question: Why do some people see it and others don't? What's in the way? Why do so many uneducated people see it? And why do some? I mean, John's appealing to people who are op- who want a metaphysical view of things, who know that the world isn't enough—water, bread. Christ is saying, I'm giving you eternal water. He's saying I'm giving you the bread. These people are hungering for something more that that world is not giving them. And Christ comes into it and offers it to them.
2: Francis just said, Christ said, Be like children. Maybe that's the problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. We all
2: we all think we know too much. And we actually know very little.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, um, I'm glad for these things. I'm generally glad to be doing this. So next week we'll do the next four chapters of John, okay? And and I'm saying this seriously. Steep yourselves in it. Read it closely. Take time. Um, be glad for it. Take it seriously. Read it deeply. And live it. See what you find. See what you find. Okay. You guys, Francis, there you are. There I am. <laughs> okay, you guys have a good week.
1: Okay, you too. Be careful out there if the weather is like. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Stay warm.
1: Stay yeah.